John Clark was born in Tasmania, and his first intention was to be an archaeologist. However, it was the theatre that called and provided Clark with an illustrious career as a theatre maker and teacher. His greatest triumph is in an indelible turn as director of the National Institute of Dramatic Art. For 35 years, he guided and nurtured generations of practitioners who would become crucial contributors to our theatre, film and television industries. He studied theatre at the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School and at Bristol University, where he designed the set for the first production of Harold Pinter's play, The Room. A series of firsts would decorate his career as a director, delivering productions of Death of a Salesman in Hobart and premiere productions of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and a landmark Sydney season of Don's Party, both of which toured nationally. He played pivotal roles with the Old Toad Theatre and the Jane Street Theatre at a time when a new Australian voice was being developed in playwriting and an authentic style for the Australian actor. When the Old Toad Theatre Company ceased operation, Clark, together with Elizabeth Butcher, became the Sydney Theatre Company's initial artistic director and administrator, overseeing an interim season in the drama theatre at the Sydney Opera House. His contributions to defining an Australian theatre on local and international stages is vast. He is one of our great champions and a man of tremendous charm and infinite story. It was indeed a privilege and a joy to spend some time with John Clark. Kazali and I get a mention. So were you an AFL footballer? Yeah. Right. From Tasmania. Yeah. Did they play AFL or VFL then? Sorry. It was VFL, yeah. Yeah, VFL. yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, it was TFL, <laughs> Tasmanian Football League. Right. But no, I played in the Amateur League. And they recruited from Tasmania for the, for the VFL team? Oh, they do still now. Some right. of the best players come up. But no, my, my interest in the, the Kazali book was I was... I wrote an article years ago which somehow got out about training footballers and training actors being so similar and so completely different from academic practice. You know, in academic practice, you do a unit of this and then a unit of that and a unit of the other thing. Well, when you're training footballers, you don't do a unit of kicking, a unit of marking, a unit of defence, you, you know. It's, it's a holistic thing. Yeah, yeah it's all holistic. And... You know, somebody compared training actors to uh, a strand of rope. You know, all the voice and movement and acting all working together. And in my view, all names were the same thing. Acting, voice, mm. movement, singing, it's all part of the same thing. Um, I mean, stamina involved with football, of course, and I, I, I hear of stories of the arts having an influence on it. Um, Bobby Helpman, no, Barassi got Bobby Helpman to give his team a, a ballet class at one stage. Well, Margaret Barr, who used to teach at NIDA, would terrify the lights out of the Sydney Swans. <laughs> I mean, oh, she was terrible. It's scary. <laughs> uh, yes, a few, few students who survived her classes comment on that. yeah. But that's, that comes from an incredible uh, discipline, doesn't it, um, of oneself in the art? Well, it is. I mean, it, it's a bit different now with such an emphasis on film and television where you can just do a little bit and sit down for a while. But, you know, in times past, 
to play a major role like Edmund and King Lear or King Lear, if you're not fit, you're not going to survive. You're not going to get past Act One. <laughs> you know. So after 40 years at the helm of Australia's leading drama school, how does John Clark amuse himself? John Clark, um, well, um, after I left NIDA, uh, during the time I was there, I built up a lot of contacts with theatre and theatre schools in Asia, particularly in India. And when I left, oh, I spent about five years uh, directing plays in India, in Hindi, uh, a couple in Singapore, one in Mandarin, the other in English. And eventually I did Measure for Measure in China, in Mandarin, uh, at the very famous, wonderful Shanghai Theatre School. Uh, and then finally I ended up where I began, which was back in Hobart, when I was invited to do a production of Hamlet down there, um, which I was terribly proud of. And, you know, I've seen a lot of sh shows in sh of Shakespeare's in Sydney, and without naming names, I mean, the Hobart production, I thought, stood up pretty well, and it was packed out. And, uh, you know, quite a few kids came, and they said they didn't understand all the, word, they, the words, but they said, gee, it was exciting. So I sort of ended up where I began. And that's what you're after, isn't it? To, to leave some sort of imprint on an audience's, especially a young audience's... Uh, oh, I, that's absolutely right. And, you know, I've always felt with Shakespeare, if you concentrate on the characters and the story and don't muck around with it and don't try to fill it up with all production tricks and show off how clever you are as a director, if you trust the words and if you create believable characters... And if you create a world that's believable, where what everybody does seems sensible and logical, um, you know, it could be a science fiction world, it could be a historical world, it could be a contemporary world, but you've got to make that world believable. And if you tell the story of what actually happens from scene to scene, you've got an audience, and then the audience can get whatever it chooses to get from whatever they believe that Shakespeare's talking about. Uh, I mean, one of my bait noirs is people who think, oh, we've got to make Shakespeare relevant. I mean, if the text is not relevant, why the hell are you doing it? Mm. I mean, do something else. Mm -hmm. What was the first show that had an impact on you? That you think? Oh, probably, gosh, the first show <laughs> that had a real impact... Um, you never believe this, was the Polys Bergere in Paris. <laughs> and as soon as I finished at university in Tasmania, uh, we, myself and a couple of other blokes, we went over to uh, England, bought a taxi for 50 quid, an old 1938 Austin that had survived the Blitz. And we drove to Paris, went to the Folies Bergere, and I had never seen anything like it. It was just a sensational event. Uh, I mean, I could tell you details of it. Was it the optics or the... Oh, um... it was the scenery. It it was just the sheer bold theatricality of it. I mean, there was one scene where the star, uh, whose name was... I've never forgotten this, was Mamselle Cadillac. <laughs> and uh, there was a scene in it based on a play by Eugene O'Neill called The Hairy Ape, 
where all these all the ballet boys were playing these boiler stokers in the hold of a ship and the music was going and flames were coming out of the boiler and Mamsel Cadillac walked down the staircase and the boys took a liking to her and they ripped off all their clo- all her clothes and proceeded to do something really quite naughty, which would not be acceptable today. And that stuck in the memory. I thought, this is better than anything I've seen in Hobart. <laughs> and then I think the following night we went out to uh, a little theatre, which I don't think is any longer there, called um, Le Théâtre Guinguino, where they did short plays that were totally based on realistic portrayal of stories about sex and violence. And there were eyes being gouged out and legs being sawed off, you know. And I suddenly thought, now I know what the Greeks were about. I mean, sex and violence has been the staple of, you know, most serious theatre for years and years, years. Birth, copulation and death. That's what it's about. Common narratives. Yes. So John Richard James Clark, are they family names? Yes. um, I'm not sure where John came from. My parents didn't tell me. But uh, the Richard was from uh, a fond uncle. And James was my father's and grandfather's name. Yeah. But I didn't inherit the family name, which was Purcell, which I've given to my son. And he rather likes it. Yeah, it's a great Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so where did that come from? That's from a, a grandfather? Uh, it was a family name going back a few generations. I mean, my, my grandfather's grandfather had the distinction of introducing cremation to Tasmania. So he was a well-known... He came out as a ship's carpenter and then started making coffins and then set up a funeral company called Alex Clark. And my mother's ironing board was an old coffin lid that had had the angles, you know, smoothed over. So uh, I come from a family of undertakers and public servants and lawyers, (laughs) which is odd because... Lawyers, to me, are the anathema of theatre. I mean, lawyers tend to look backwards. You don't make a decision unless it's based on some rule or on some precedent. Whereas I think theatre people think, ah, to hell with all that. Let's give it a go. Let's go out of the unknown. Let's try this. If it works, hallelujah. So, you know, when boards start talking about uh, um, risk management, you think, well, so what? Theatre people live with that from day one. Mm. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I've still got a slightly legal mind, which I've tried to apply in some instances to, you know, the, the bookwork associated with NIDA, so I can write a good report. Excellent. <laughs> what was it like growing up in Hobart? Look, Quite it, a small city, I suppose, at, at that it, point. Well, Hobart at that time was... Gee, even up to 1988 at the Commonwealth Games in Brisbane, they left uh, Tasmania off the map. And, uh, you know, when I was growing up there, Hobart only had a population of about 100,000. And the idea of a career in the theatre was impossible. But looking back on it, I had the best time there. Because, I mean, at Cleams College at the age of five... I was asked to 
enact the role of the king who wanted more butter on his bread. Uh, I went to Melbourne for a couple of years during the war and my father was a guest of the Japanese and came back to Hobart and I went to a school where the headmaster, Hal Porter, you know, there's a great yes. Australian writer, he directed a school play that was so superb, it moved into the Hobart Theatre Royal and played a big season there. And I was keen to offer my services to Hal Porter the following year. Unfortunately, he was sacked because he had something to do with starting a huge... This is a private school, public yep. school, we call them in Hobart, um, you know, an Anglican school. And the, the whole school went on strike in 1946 because the headmaster decided that the annual King's birthday uh, holiday they would not take because it, inter it was interfering with school work. Unfortunately, the Elwick races were on that day and one of the teachers was a judge and Hobart was playing North Hobart or whatever for football and one of the staff played professional football for Hobart. So the whole staff and student went on strike for a day. And I thought that was great fun. <laughs> <laughs> the stupid thing is that um, the headmaster really was didn't deserve the treatment he got from me and from us and from other people in a very conservative town because he tried to introduce new ideas into the school and he was rejected. But amongst other things, he employed a professional director to do school plays. And, you know, I was in quite a few of those and enjoyed it immensely. And I still have over there somewhere a school report where the headmaster has written, now the school play is set over, uh, John should settle down. And I did. And then I went to university. And again, the old Nick Dramatic Society there, which still goes, I mean, it's the oldest continuous theatre company, I suspect, in Australia. Um, and when I went down there for the 60th birthday a few years ago, uh, the governor of Tasmania was an ex-member, the premier was an ex-member, <laughs> the, uh, the mayor of Hobart was an ex-member, and it, it, it was amazing. And we used to do plays and we used to do an annual review, which just packed out the Hobart Theatre Royal for two weeks and then went up to Launceston. And I think we drank all the profits. So I'm not sure what happened to them. But it was a terrific way of learning comedy. So uh, in reviews like Nuts in May? Nuts in May. Yeah. Nuts in May, smoking hot, red hot, white hot, yes, all of those things. But you were contributing scripts as well. I wrote a lot of scripts, yeah. 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 But the interesting thing too then was that at university, which I, I just enjoyed immensely, and uh, it had a huge influence, I think, on NIDA because it was a small university and it was a genuine community in which some people happened to be teachers and some people happened to be uh, students and you called each other Mr. until, you know, one of the lecturers might say, oh, call me Ted. And you thought, gee, I'm so grown up, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it was a wonderful time there. And I was involved in student politics and I played football and I was terribly good at tipping exam questions 
So I got the best possible academic results you could get. And in those days, you were, you were invited to apply for a Rhodes Scholarship. And I was invited. And uh, the trouble is, what I didn't realise is that I just supported the staff in a huge revolution in the university, trying to get the lazy university council to spend $300,000 the government has allocated the university to relocate the university in this awful little campus up on the domain down to this beautiful big campus down in Tasmania. So, and I work for the, I had a scholarship from the Hobart Mercury and they paid me to give any news from the university to the Mercury. So I went and organised a whole demonstration against the University Council and the Chancellor, and then rang the, the Mercury and said, you better come up. What I didn't realise was that the Chancellor was on the Rhodes Scholarship Committee. And when I went out to the interview, which is a pretty scary thing, because in a semi-circle, there was the governor, there was the chief justice, the chancellor, the vice-chancellor, all the great and the good of Hobart, and one chair sitting, and the aide-de-comp, you know, is dripping in gold braid and all that, said, you sit there. And there were quite a few good questions. And I wanted to be an archaeologist. I wanted to go to Oxford and do uh, Egyptology. And I think the chancellor said to me, if you go to Oxford, Mr. Clark, uh, will you continue your interest in the theatre? And I said, of course, yes, because the Oxford University Dramatic Society has got a very eminent alumni. I mean, Sir John Gilgood, Ken Tyne, and I reeled off a few others. And then he said, do you think that the drama is a suitable occupation for a Rhodes Scholar? And I thought, I'm fucked. <laughs> And I was. Yeah. And the Rhodes Scholarship went to Neil Blewett, oh, right, yeah. who was a, a fine minister in the Hawke and Keating governments, Minister for Health. And I think, as it worked out, that was the best thing that could have happened. Because the next day, the governor rang me after the interview, and he said, listen, Hugh Hunt, you know, who was a very eminent uh, theatre director, had just arrived in Australia to set up the Elizabethan Theatre Trust. He said, do you want to come out and meet him? And I said, it's terribly nice of you, Governor. So I went out and had cups of tea and met Hugh Hunt. He said, anything I can do for you? And I said, look, I think there's a new academic drama department just started at Bristol University. He said, I'll fix it for you. And I, I, I did. So I went over there and spent a year at Bristol which was wonderful. Uh, amongst other things, I designed the set for Harold Pinter's first play called The Room. And then I spent a year in London. And over that time, I think I saw 170 different productions. That's a wonderful education in itself. Look, it's the best. I mean, how you... It's so much better than... Going, spending two or three years in a library doing a PhD on Bertolt Brecht or something. Mm. I mean, that's the worst thing you can do. But even in Hobart, I mean, I'd worked at the Theatre Royal, I'd cleaned the Theatre Royal, I'd worked as a flyman at the Theatre Royal, I'd done some acting at the Theatre Royal, I'd been an ASM, uh, I worked with the Fifi Vanvard Company, 
And, you know, my job was... Peter Manbard used to work with Bob Dyer and was the last of the Red Hot Mummers. And she was, what shall we say, a very large lady. And my job was, after she'd done kicked up her legs doing ta-ra-ra, boom <laughs> I used to catch her in the wings and hand her the brandy bottle. So that by the time I sort of got to NIDA, I knew that theatre was something you did with your hands. I mean, it was a rough and tumble physical activity that didn't just involve your head, but your heart and your hands and your body. And at the same time, I had a good academic year being taught by top teachers at Bristol and then a year of theatre going in London at a time when theatre was radically changing with new directors like Peter Hall and Peter Brook, new actors coming up like Peter O'Toole. I beat him at table tennis in Bristol because he was just making his name. So it was the best possible time to be in London. And then I went back to Hobart and I was offered a production there and I did this production of Death of a Salesman. And uh, two people came to see it. Uh, Walt Cherry came from the Melbourne Theatre Company and said, listen, get yourself over to Melbourne. I'll give you a job and you can start directing next year. And Robert Quentin came down from NIDA and offered me a job and I decided to take NIDA. <laughs> That's how I got there. That's how you got there. Yeah. That's a trap. Was Pinter a student at Bristol when you were there? No. no? Um, but his very, very good friend, uh, Henry Wolfe, who was an actor, um, he was on the same course as I was on. There was about six or seven international students. And Henry knew Harold, who was then acting in Ireland. And Henry persuaded Harold to let him, Henry, direct his first little play, which had never been done before, which is called The Room. And he asked me to design it. I've got a photo of it. It's a photo in Martin Eslin's book on the Theatre of the Absurd. Right. But it doesn't credit the designer. Oh, no. No, that's not right. You'll rectify that in your new book. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that was my contact. That my one contribution to British theatre. Was was Michael Blakemore from Tasmania? Blakemore? Yeah. No, he was a Sydney bloke. Sydney bloke, right. Yeah, wonderful actor, wonderful director and wonderful novelist. Mm. So he'd be uh, making his start into a... Yes, I I didn't... I wasn't... I'm talking about 1956, which Mm. I think was probably... If he was in in England at the time, he was probably working in the provinces. Right. You met your wife in uh, London at that time? Yes, we did, actually. (laughs) Yes, we sort of fell into each other's arms and went uh, hitchhiking around Europe when it was safe. Uh, We both took part in a play that was presented at a drama festival in Switzerland and have stayed together ever since. It's funny that you have to go around the world to meet somebody from the same, (laughs) same country. Well... There are a lot of rude stories about Tasmanians being inbred, which is simply not true. <laughs> uh, but it's worked out terribly well, and uh, I couldn't have been happier all my life. And at the present time, we've got three wonderful kids, five equally wonderful grandchildren, and a one-year-old great-grandchild. Did any of them go into the business? Yes. Yeah. The, 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 the father of my grand 
great-grandchild, um, uh, Jack Horton, his, my the eldest daughter's son, he got into NIDA when Aubrey was there after I'd left. He did the technical course and he's never been out of work since. So he's now a technical coordinator with the American Conservatory Theatre in San Francisco. Brilliant. So I'm very proud of him. But his younger brother, uh, they both lived with us for years and years, but younger brother went to ANU to do commerce. But he, as a part-time job, he made all his money out of working in the theatre and doing lighting. And he, after ANU, he spent a year in Sydney and he was had a big job at the Hayes Theatre, but he really wanted to be a pilot. Unfortunately, he's colourblind, so he's got a small plane pilot's licence, but he's not long completed a postgraduate aeronautics logistics course in England. And I think his aim is to come back here and uh, run the new airport. <laughs> I see that. I hope he does. <laughs> so they're terrific boys. Death of a Salesman. Had you seen that in London when you returned to Tasmania no. director? No, no. So this was this wonderful new script which you opened and yeah. a great story. Well, it's such a wonderful story that it sort of produces itself. Uh, and, you know, it taught me a lot that if you have a really good cast uh, and you keep out of their way and give them room to breathe and just make sure the bits all fit together and that the story is clear, it's going to work. And I can remember... Well, actually, on the opening night, I think, I think I'm the only person I know who actually came out on stage and said, is there a doctor in the house? Because the leading man who was playing Willie Lohman had a mild heart attack. And uh, the lighting man, who's not a bad actor, came in and read the rest of it. Now, what, it must have been the second night, not the first night. And um, the, he recovered from his problem and went on and did it but I mean there were that cast was remarkable and people don't think much about Tasmanian theatre but you know the actors down there they, they're not full-time actors but they're bloody good I mean they just are and I had a good cast then just as I did have a good cast for Hamlet I wouldn't want any better so you started at NIDA, and between 59 and 68, you were tutoring in theatre history? Yes, I was. Is that right? Working under um, the founding director, Robert Quinton, and then Tom Brown. Yes. What, what can you tell me about those two men? Look, they were wonderful people. And I was lucky because, in a way, they were the best mentors. And I worked with them under their direction, both at NIDA and doing shows for the old tote for about eight years before I became director of NIDA. So I, by the time I got there, I had a rough idea what I'm doing. Uh, um, and it's it worries me so much at the moment that some of the major theatre companies here are run by very young directors who have never had somebody much more experienced and wiser sitting over them, and as I did, and saying, John, don't do that. Or, John, just sit over there a while. I'll fix that bit. Which is what happened with me once. I mean, with 
when I did a production for the tote called um, The Representative, I got to the dress rehearsal and everything was wrong with it. I mean, I'd spent so much time working on the script, I forgot to direct it, and it was running too long. And I think it was Tom Brown who said, look, I'm just going to fix this. We're going to chuck out all that furniture. We're going to do this, this, this. You sit there for a while. Now, that can be hugely humiliating. But, you know, who, what's more important, your hu humiliation or the audience? And the show was a huge hit. And it went up to Brisbane. And it got a press, which I could show you, which is just amazing. And I thought, my name's on it. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know... What was their background? Were they, they from the UK? Were they directors? Uh, yes, Robert, Robert was a director uh, who used to work in the West End, was also an Oxford graduate, was highly intelligent, was very gentle, was terribly determined, and was just a mad theatre maker. I mean, people don't give him credit that's due. I mean, he not only started NIDA, he started the Australian Opera, he started the Academic Drama Department, he founded the James Street Theatre, he looked after the young Elizabethan players in their heyday, uh, and what else? He started um, the Lunchtime Theatre in 1960-something in town. I mean... And what he That's people an extraordinary legacy. And, just and extraordinary. And people used name. to accuse him of being an empire builder. Well, of course he was. But what he did was to build up something and then hand it over. So he built up NIDA, gave it to Tom Brown, and then handed it over to me. And I was lucky because he remained on the board when I first took over. And I got such good assistance from him. Uh, when the director of NIDA after Aubrey, uh, when she was appointed, I was still a member of the board and the chairman, Malcolm Long, said, we don't want you on the board anymore. You're intimidating the director. Well, that, that's simply not true. But as a result, uh, everything that I, I knew about NIDA that I could pass on and I'd said to the new director look I'm not going to tell you what to do but if you want any help just ask me and board meetings are not time to say to the director you should do this you should do that uh, I queried a lot of things that she claimed were her ideas which Aubrey had actually started uh, but um, at that time Nida just lost continuity Boards are important for governance, aren't they? But they should also support and nurture those who are leading the organisation. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, boards are very funny people. I mean, I suppose the not-for-profit theatre industry is about the only industry in Australia which is run by people who know, know nothing about it. You know, and... Yeah, people often say, look, the main job of a board of directors is to appoint the artistic director. Um, some theatre companies have got a very bad record and 
after I left NIDA, uh, the board appointed Aubrey. Three years later, they appointed another director. About 10 years later, uh, that director moved on and the chairman took over as the director of NIDA. And then the following year, the chairman became the director of NIDA. And now she's just appointed another one. So in the space of that time, how many directors? And theatre schools do depend on continuity. What they need is new artistic energy. And that's what I hoped when I left, that, uh, that the structure was fine. It was really, you know, red hot. Uh, but it really needed somebody younger than myself to come in and sort of inspire the staff or maybe say to the staff, look, well, it's time maybe we moved on somewhere there uh, and to deal with that tactfully. But um, that didn't happen. And the moment Aubrey left, the new director literally sacked the entire staff. And there was, what, 40 years corporate memory just went out the window. If it's not broke, don't fix it. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> but there's great sense in that, that, you know, for the 40 years when you, together with Elizabeth Butcher, steered the organisation. Yeah. That was a great coupling and a great uh, structure for the, for the organisation. Well, it, it, it was, actually. Uh, I mean, we, we worked as a team. Um, who was the senior officer? I don't know. I mean, we both had our jobs to do. They were both completely different. She looked after management and money, <coughs> pardon me, and I looked after art and education, and I couldn't have done her job, she couldn't have done my job, but we worked together. Who was the senior officer was totally irrelevant. And, you know, I would never have dreamt of using a word like CEO. I mean, that's corporate bullshit. Mm. And, you know, when Malcolm Long became chairman in... 2005 or thereabouts, what does he do? He combines both jobs together in the one person and sets up the not only the director of NIDA, but the director CEO of NIDA. And on the board at that time, I remember one director saying to me, I said, you know, when I was querying, why do you, why do you do this? I mean, it's not the way theatre companies work or theatre schools work. And I, he said to me, well, look, you can't have two bosses running the one organisation. And I thought, oh, have I been wrong all these years? You know, how stupid. So I, 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 I think the sad thing about boards is that there's usually only one or two, at the most, theatre practitioners on boards and the average discussion and level of discussion on a board is as boring as batshit for them. And they tend to back away and they back away from it. Uh, and what happens too, if a board which comprises heavily of business people and lawyers or academics, if the board also has a foundation board whose job is to raise money, so the board doesn't have to raise money, the board gets bored and starts to think 
of moving more and more into management. And that happens twice at NIDA. It happened to me in 1985 when the board started holding meetings without me because I wasn't really a member of the board, but I always attended. But then they started having meetings without me. Uh, the staff had failed two or three students and the board reinstated them over the wishes of the staff. I had discontinued a staff member's contract because he was not satisfactory. The board liked him and reinstated him. And there, there was what we called the gang of three, three people from the university, the chairman, who was a professor of wool technology, the chancellor's wife, who was actress Jackie Cott, and the deputy chancellor, Jessica Milner-Navis, all thought that NIDA was badly run, it was badly organised, it had to become much more like an academic school. And what they didn't notice was, and they regarded Elizabeth Butcher as financially incompetent, and they regarded me as a complete bully who appointed my friends to jobs. In fact, the people I appoint to jobs become my friends, so it wasn't the other way around. But at that time, I mean, NIDA had 84% employment. Uh, it had just completed the big international success with Strictly Ballroom. Harry Kipax was writing letters to me, which I've got, saying, you know, the talent coming out of NIDA is marvellous. The education department had just okayed the whole NIDA structure. And here are these three people, we called the Gang of Three, saying, oh no, NIDA's terrible, it's got to change, we've got to do this, this. And it got into such a mess that the board eventually call, agreed to call in an umpire who came in and wrote a report uh, that exonerated the staff and said the board should not move into management. And I don't know, I, can't, I don't know really what's happened to NIDA over the last few years, but I just suspect the, the board's been much more interested in management than it used to be. Or should be. Or should be, for that matter. How did you meet Elizabeth Butcher? Well, when I, when I became director of NIDA, uh, the whole staff left. <laughs> not, not, not because of Something me, I you said? <laughs> well, Alan Edwards and Joe McCollum went up to start off the Queensland Theatre Company, and they were the main people. Uh, so I advertised the job. And it had to be someone who could do typing and answer the phone and so on. And there were two applicants. And one was a... They were both ladies. One was more senior than the other. Um, and I, I honestly didn't know what to do, uh, which one to go for, the experienced one or the inexperienced one who couldn't even type. <laughs> and uh, uh, Robert Quentin said, look... He said, you want a bit of advice? Look for somebody on the way up, not somebody on the way down. So between us, we agreed that Elizabeth Butcher was the one. So she came in uh, and she, she said afterwards, the only reason she took the job was because she liked the office. <laughs> and, and she'd been uh, 
assistant to the Dean of Dentistry at um, Sydney University uh, and had studied chemistry at, at uh, university. So she came in and, you know, I just left her to run it. And she was she was graded as a male-graded female at level six or something. Uh, and when I tried to get her salary upgraded by the board, the vice-chancellor was on the board, and I, I said, look, this is terribly low. Her salary should be up to there, which is roughly equivalent with other jobs. And he said, oh, he said, I could get a PhD for that. And I thought, sir, try it. But she, she simply worked her way into the job with great willingness and energy, just took over and did it so well. And again, I just left it to it. And I mean, she used to look after the money. She ran the place. She was nice to the staff. She got students out of trouble. And sometimes they were naughty. I mean, outside of NIDA and she rescued them from Martin Place in compromising circumstances. Uh, and, you know, between the two of us, we just worked so happily together. And the students, you couldn't use these words now, became our kids. Mm. And NIDA became a family. And we we cared about them. And we kept tabs on them all. We knew who all, who all the graduates are. And, you know, since I've left, you know, I look back and I've just been writing a book, which I think I end up saying, NIDA's greatest asset are its graduates, which is true. Mm. They are the important thing. And both Elizabeth and I put their interest above everything else. So the old Tote Theatre was existing at the time. That was started by NIDA in 63? Yes, it was. It was started by... NIDA was a company limited by guarantee. It was totally independent. It was an independent company. It wasn't part of the university. And... Uh, well, I think Elizabeth mentioned in a podcast I did with her, you were determined to keep that autonomy. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why I, I, the two of us had always distanced ourselves from academe. Uh, not because I disliked or, you know, had any strong feelings against universities. Uh, we had a wonderful relationship with the university, but I didn't want any work contacts, you know? Yeah. Uh, and... When we listed the staff, we never used academic terms like uh, lecturers or anything. It was always head of voice or voice movement, so on. And I never listed degrees. I mean, we had a couple of doctors and I had a few degrees, but we would never, never list them. In publications? In publications, yeah, I can show you an annual report there. Uh, it was not important. You were the teachers, you were the staff. No. Yeah. And, you know, you didn't have to have a degree to get into teaching. You had to be a good teacher. And uh, indeed, a lot of people, even when NIDA was only offering diplomas, uh, like Pamela Stevenson, that diploma helped her to get into a university in America where she became a sex therapist. <laughs> 
What do you think of that? Yeah. As well as a comedian, marvellous, marvellous girl. Married Billy Conley, who is a great man. But you were going back to the tote. You know, Nida was independent and we started off the tote and it happened at a time when the trust had already made an attempt to start up several theatre companies, including one that travelled all around Australia, and they had failed because they were simply too expensive and there wasn't the money there at the time to run them. And uh, I think Neil Hutchison was looking after the trust at that time. And Robert Quentin said to him, listen, we've got a little theatre here. Uh, we can provide free stage management students. We can provide free directors because there were four people on the staff who could direct. And we can provide free front of house. We've got little workshops. So this is a cheap way of starting it. So we did. And, uh, you know, it began with Robert Quentin's Cherry Orchard, which was just marvellous. It attracted all the best actors in Sydney, willing to work for equity minimum. Uh, I did the second production, which the first time I'd ever worked with professional actors. And, you know, I had people like Brian James and uh, Gwen Plum, who I totally adore still. Lovely, lovely woman and great, great actor. And I mean, she had the courage to appear in two plays, one by Ionesco and one by Frisch, you know, mad, mad avant-garde plays and trust herself to a young director. And she used to say to me sometimes, darling, I wouldn't talk to actors like that. You know, <sighs> sorry, Gwen. <laughs> Keep you honest. It does, wonderful. Uh, and that was a big success. And I remember actually, I, I still treasure a review. Uh, somebody wrote and my little production of Ball Primadonna was Glenny and uh, Anna Volska, John Bell. It, it was great fun. And um, the review said, this production is much funnier than the original production that was done by a director called somebody Bataille at the Théâtre des Nocambules in Paris. It's probably still running, I think. I saw it in 212. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and mine was much funnier. <laughs> there. You directed the original uh, Australian production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, I always think how, how wonderful of Robert Quentin to trust a young director with that play. But he knew what I'd learnt at... I think with the other salesman, if you've got a really watertight play and let the actors go, you don't have to do that much. And I had a terrific cast and it took off and ran around Australia and New Zealand for a couple of years. What a play to, <laughs> to have done. Who were your cast? Oh, the cast was Kevin Miles, Wendy oh, Blacklock. Oh, wow, yeah. And Alex Hay, who was just a superb man, and um, uh, who was the third, Jackie Cotton and Alex Hay, Wendy Blacklock, Kevin Miles, four of them. Brilliant. Yeah. And it was interesting because the Vice Squad came on the opening night because the publicity about it was incredible. Um, 
I mean, I've, I've got, I used to cut out all the press cuttings I've got over there. And uh, when we toured to Brisbane, I came out of my hotel and there's a newsboy on the street yelling out, filth and obscenity at His Majesty's Theatre. I thought, wow. <laughs> You've but made it. The Vice Squad came on the opening night and you could tell them in the foyer because they, they were a couple of young cops uncomfortable in ties and shirts and with washed faces and nicely done hair. And I went up to them and I said, you know, how are you, mate? How'd you enjoy it? Uh, any problems? Yes, yeah, no, bloody good show, mate. And I said, oh, good. And he just, I said, are you worried about anything? He said, well, yeah, uh, a bit, obs bit obscene, but I don't know. He said, the thing that worried me most was the gesture that Kevin Miles used with his two fingers when he said the line, up yours, with two fingers. And I remember Kevin doing it with great vigour. So the, the, the fist began by his knee and he ended up up the top of the stage. And uh, I said, oh, that's interesting because I said, if you pop down to the Kent Theatre where Tom Brown was doing John Bell in uh, Henry V, you'll find a character there called Pistol, who has got a line, a fig for thee, a fig for thee, and uses exactly the same gesture. I said, pop down, have a look. He said, oh, no, I won't bother, mate. <laughs> and we had no trouble. But up in, up in uh, Brisbane, uh, a Queensland dentist turned up and he watched the show and he was quite shocked by it. And the production was offered to country towns in Brisbane and it was offered to a town called Cloncurry. And the town councillor whose name happened to be Catter, turned it down. And he wouldn't have it. He thought it was too obscene. And the Queensland dentist wrote a letter to him, four-page letter, which I, I treasure. And he said, look, I've attended this obscene production, and I have to tell you, under the heading obscene, uh, blasphemy, the word God, oh my God, good God is used 87 times. The word Jesus, 47 times. The word so-and-so, 89 times. And then under the heading obscenity, at page 21, here on the living room floor, brackets, i.e. sexual intercourse. Page 27, uh, Martha paints blue circles round her things, brackets, i.e nipples, brackets, clothes. Page 87, despite what they say about Chinese women. No explanation to that one. <laughs> and then it went on and right at the end it said uh, it's quite common knowledge that communists set out to break down the moral fibre of a community and obviously young directors from the Elizabethan Theatre Trust are really trying to undermine Australia's moral integrity. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I had, I had a great friend of mine, Bob Moore, who used to be a television um, talkback star for ABC, and he got both of us on uh, his program, Monday Conference, I think it was one night, and uh, we argued away. And uh, I can remember the, the 
Queensland dentist shaking with rage. And it was the best publicity we could have. We've come a long way with censorship on yeah. the stage, haven't we? But eventually, going back to the old tote, the old tote eventually had to become independent because there was a lot of criticism going on that the old tote wasn't doing enough Australian plays. Well, the, they weren't any good at that time. You were very lucky to find a good play. And eventually, the old tote, I think in 1968 or thereabouts, did a whole season of Australian plays and uh, it cost a lot of money and the company nearly went broke. And if that had happened, NIDA would have gone out the window. So the board decided to split the two companies apart. The tote became independent. The university gave them the old lecture room on the Western campus of the university to become the parade theatre. The tote moved down there and left us with all the crap in the old buildings. <laughs> the night, the, where the, gosh, after the final performance over the weekend, uh, I'd just become director of NIDA and Robin Lovejoy had taken over the tote. And I came into the theatre next morning and the whole theatre had been stripped. Every single light, every light plug, every cord had been taken by the tote down to Anzac Parade. And I was absolutely furious. I mean, really. And uh, I went into the NIDA office, which was about the size of this small room with about 20 desks in it. And in one corner, there was a sink and a little heater over it. and. Robin Lovejoy was there unscrewing the heater. I said, Robin, what the are you doing? What are you, leave it alone. He said, that heater was given to me personally. I said, listen, you get out of here, I'll bash you. I won't say what. <laughs> and he wisely departed. But, you know, that meant when I started NIDA... No, leaving you with no resources nothing. at all. Yeah. And uh, an ex-student uh, and a great friend called Derek Nicholson... Uh, came in, who became a drama teacher in secondary schools uh, and was a very good bloke. But he came in and sort of got everything going again. And then John Bell came in as a teacher uh, and things started then to pick up. But so When did Jane Street come about then? Is that well, shortly after the, demi the demise of the Toad? Well, it, it sort of all interlocks and it's hard to get a continuity on it. But Robert Quentin discovered Jane Street when I was in America in 1966. And he, he thought that Australian plays were not ready and they really needed to be workshopped and tested before they were put on in proper productions. And he found this little church hall up in Kensington called in Jane Street. Uh, and he converted it into a theater and he got a little bit of money from the Goldbankian Foundation and he did a season of new Australian plays, none of which were much good. And that was in 1966. And the following year, the old tote took a risk and did four big productions of Australian plays and nearly wrecked the joint. 1967, Robert gave Jim Sharman the use of the theatre and he did a review called Terra Australis, 
which got a sort of very funny press, but Patrick White came to see it and wrote a letter to the paper and said it's the best thing he's seen for 20 years, and it, it did very well. Uh, I became director at the end of 1968, and set, the first thing I did was set up Jane Street again. With uh, I think we got about 10,000 from the state government, so the actors received fellowships uh, and didn't have to pay tax. And uh, that's how it began. So the first year, uh, we did a couple of plays which were not very successful. Second year was King O'Malley. Third year was King Edward, I think, or uh, Don's Party, which was a big hit. And then King Edward with Gordon Chader, which is a big hit. So, and then it kept going after that. Of course, we had uh, La Mama and the Pram Factory in Melbourne. Yes. So that time. Did you, when you, the Jane Street was started, did you think it was going to be um, a seminal company in developing an Australian voice and a, an Australian acting style? No, I, I, no, I reckon, I mean, theatre companies come and go, and I knew it couldn't last forever. Um, and it, eventually, after around right about 1978, um, all the playwrights, uh, all the theatre companies were doing Australian plays. So the playwrights were sending their new work straight to the uh, Old Tote or to Sydney Theatre Co or Nimrod or where it was. And the stuff coming to us was not that good. And I thought, it's done its dash, so why try to keep it going? Uh, but before it went, I thought, you know, we've got a couple of young directors here, or one not so young, uh, who really deserve to do something that they really passionately care about to show off. And we did an Aubrey Mellor season where he did um, As You Like It with Angela Punch and he did Mother Courage with Kerry Walker and they were, it set, set up Aubrey's career. They were wonderful productions. And then the following year, uh, George Whaley was teaching at NIDA so I said, right, you can do your two favourite plays. I persuaded Ken Hall to let us do On Our Selection, which he was reluctant to do. He said, I don't want kids touching my property. You know, but I went at him and eventually he said, OK, George adapted it. And he had the most sensational cast. I mean, he had Geoffrey Rush. He had Mel Gibson, he had Barry Otto, he had Noni Hazelhurst, he had Robert Menzies. I mean, come on, I mean, the best cast ever. And then his second production was Waiting for Godot with Mel Gibson and Geoffrey Rush, John Raymond playing Pozzo and Viv Garrett playing the boy. And, you know, what more could you want? And after that, there were a couple more productions because they sold Jane Street, which we did in the old parade when we moved into the new building. Uh, and at that time, we thought, forget it. How did Don's party land on your desk? Uh, it landed on my desk because Elizabeth, I was away in England doing something or other, and I was doing a, learning something of Rada or something. And... Uh, she got in touch with Catherine Brisbane and Catherine Brisbane sent her a script and she will probably tell you 
that she looked at the first page and there were three fucks and four something else's and she thought John will like that <laughs> <laughs> and she gave it to me and uh, I thought it's it's a, it's a messy messy script and I, I thought it really needs a lot of work I got a terrific cast together and I spent an awful lot of time with David. He was working in Melbourne and we had backward and forward writing and writing and rewriting. So doing some dramaturgy and... Oh, well, a chap called Jeremy Gadd did a academic PhD years afterwards in which both David and I gave him all our manuscripts. Pardon me, all my manuscripts and changes and handwritten stuff. And... He's, he worked out logistically that uh, the cast and myself had contributed to 80% of the script. And for instance, I mean, the, uh, the commentary on the election was not there in the original script. Right. And the way that happened was we were rehearsing and, you know, there's a lot of the play goes on in the kitchen where they're watching the commentary and originally it was to be like that and I had been invited that evening to have dinner with my ABC TV mate Bob Moore who used to call the elections for ABC and I took along a tape recorder and a student who was my assistant on the show I'd said to him, listen, can you write a script, you know, about five or six sections of a couple of pages each of what might have been said on that night of the 1960 election? So he did. And I hadn't read them. So I took them on. We had dinner with Bob. And just before pudding, <laughs> I said, listen, you come and record something. I'm doing this show. He said, all right. So we went into another room. And I said, look, it's a commentary on the election. Do you mind reading it? Because I want to use it in the show. He said, no, that's all right. So he read it. It's now in the script. I mean, pages of it. So it was written by a student. And eventually, um, I mean, what I discovered about the play was that I think when it was done in Melbourne, it was naturalistically done. And there was an awful lot of rude talk, which was nasty and disagreeable uh, and I suspect people trying to be offensive and being much more angry than they need to and maybe not finding the affection and the love for the characters which you needed if you were to take the message of the play uh, and not be put off by the people and so what we did was we eventually orchestrated it into a piece of music which it is so that you'd segue from this into that into that into that because they're all on stage all night but you yeah it had to happen with the precision of a piece of music so like you'd zoom in on various conversations yes. through the party yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, i i think i added quite a bit i was very peeved when uh, the next year he gave his next play to the old tote and Robin said, I'm doing this. 
I never got another Williamson play, which I, I felt a bit sad about. But it's odd, if you look at David's history as a playwright, uh, I mean, I think he's used every director in Australia, wow. one by one. Yeah. And he ended up with himself, which was not wise, because he's not very good at directing. I don't think anybody's very good at directing, directing their own, their own work, yeah. Yeah. How important do you think reviewers like Catherine Brisbane and Harry Kippax were to supporting the development of an Australian theatre? Uh, look, Harry Kippax was terribly important. Um, I mean, he, he was a marvellous critic and he was very, very perceptive. Uh, and he had the status of the Sydney Morning Herald to get his work, you know, well aired. And at that time, you know, he was also writing as Breck for the nation. And, I mean, he was eloquent, he was perceptive, he cared about theatre. Uh, he was terribly supportive of NIDA, uh, not always giving nice crits, but what he was keen to do, what he loved doing was identifying the people he thought would shine in future years. Uh, so I, I loved him dearly. Catherine was 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 a very good critic, I think. Uh, I sometimes got slightly irritated with Currency Press, who are now being very generous to me. So uh, I, I I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say it, but I sometimes thought that Currency published scripts too early, before the development before the... they'd really been developed properly. Mm. Uh, in the same way, I think, you know, a lot of playwrights have got their plays on in big productions before they're quite ready. And uh, I mean, I believe that of Cossey, which I think potentially is a very good play by Louis Nara, but it really needs rejigging to really make its point more forcefully than it does. I mean, I think Louis Nara could, could, have, could have been an international major playwright but his plays never quite take that final step. Maybe that's due to directors who are not so not able to really take on a playwright and say, "This is what you should do," is not. This is what you shouldn't do. Mm. I don't know. Now, can anyone be taught to act? Olivia once said, uh, "Talent is plentiful, skill." is rare mm. and what we what we did at NIDA always was we look for talent or potential talent we didn't look for skill because that was the one thing we could teach you can't teach talent I mean you can you can re-energize an imagination uh, but if the talent's not there there's not much you can do uh, but you can teach skill and skill is not just a matter of technique, but an approach to characterization uh, and, you know, a mental approach to uh, the way you go about rehearsals. So there is a lot you can teach. But when, I mean, the case in point, I was uh, watching, turned on Netflix the other night, six movies with Sam Worthington in oh, them. Yeah. I mean, six. <laughs> and I turned on a, another a TV series which my son recommended called Mind Hunter, 
which is quite original crime series, but quite different from the normal run. And lo and behold, the leading lady is Anna Torf, who was at 90 years ago. But I can remember Sam Worthington auditioning in Perth many, many years ago. And he came in as though he'd just come off Cottesloe Beach with sand in his hair and not quite dry. Uh, and he, he gave an audition and it, it wasn't bad, but he was such an interesting lad and he was quite young. And we, we said, look, Sam, why don't you go away for a year and if you like, grow up a bit and get a bit more experience of life, work out if acting is really what you want, come back next year. And he did, and he came back next year. And we could see that his, his audition pieces and the way he responded to our little bit of teaching, his work had improved. And we thought, you know, he's not a knockout. But if he can improve that much in a year by himself, he's going to make a good use of NIDA. And he did make good use of NIDA. He ended up playing leading roles. And look at him. I mean, marvellous. So we we looked for potential talent. And also our audition system was so careful and so thorough um, that in a sense, with the very best applicants, it was an acting class. And there was no point in taking somebody who was not going to respond to teaching. And sometimes somebody would come in and do an audition, uh, and it was mind-blowing. You know, they'd come in and do Hamlet, uh, and you think, wow, that's good. And sometimes we'd say, look, that's terrific. I wonder whether you could try doing the same speech but imagine you're 85 years old and they'd say, why? <laughs> and we'd say, okay, don't bother. Rather than accept the yeah, offer. And instead mal- of hmm. yeah, playing. Saying yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, Lynn Pierce is one of the greatest improvisation teachers. Uh, I mean, the whole thing is when you're improvising, don't block people. Say yes. Hmm. Uh, why do you love me? Oh, because. Don't say, I don't love you. And uh, <laughs> it's, we had some very funny auditions. I can remember one boy coming in and I said, uh, what are you going to do? He said, uh, Hamlet, Prince of Venice. <laughs> and I said, uh, Denmark. He said, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> He'd obviously prepared well. <laughs> and one... Uh, one chap came in and auditioned, uh, wasn't very good, and came back the following year as a girl. Oh, okay. still did, she still didn't get in. Right. And it was odd in the, in the form that people had to fill in. There were a few questions about your, what, how much education you'd had, whether you'd gone to school or university, which we never cared much about. And there was always a couple of questions we did look at. And one was, what will you do if you don't get into NIDA? Which was the key question. And if somebody said, oh, well, I've applied for journalism, and you'd think, mm-mm. And the, only, the ones that we'd take most seriously was, the answer was, I don't know. So you recognised that 
passionate vocation. It tells you a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And the, the other question, which was often very funny, was, um, you know, why do you want to be an actor? And some people would say, oh, I want to be able to give personal expression to my deeper thoughts and emotions and so on. And we'd think, oh, God, we shouldn't have put that question in. And then the best answer to that was some lady who wrote, I want to be a star. (laughs) (laughs) Thought, great. What is it about Australian actors that garners world attention? Uh, I think they take the work very seriously. Uh, They don't take themselves seriously. Uh, They're courageous. They're willing to give it a go. They're not uh, overburdened with a long tradition like English actors on how to speak Shakespeare. they trust their own instincts and um, they are professional. I mean, they, they know that if you go to an audition, you go prepared. If you turn up at first rehearsal, you know the play backwards uh, and you have s- skills, uh, whether it's working to a camera or working to a, a, on a stage. I think I read an interview with Aubrey Mellor once who, who said that we have an Australian style which has been informed by the traditions of the English theatre but also the American uh, method and, and we've sort of, um, we've got this hybrid of, of all sorts. Well, I, I don't think it's a hybrid. I, I think it's, it's just us. Uh, I mean, the best, the best Australian actors are... Put it bluntly, Australian. Mm. I mean, Kate is a really rough Aussie girl who knows how to act. Johnny Jarrett, Steve Bisley. I mean, they are honest to God Aussies. Where 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 the American stuff comes in is that you you have a number of very good American teachers like Stella Adler and so on, who have written books about acting as well as Stanislavski has and Boleslavski and all the Russians. Uh, and a couple of English authors have written very good books about uh, teaching acting, and they come into the teaching, but I, I, I wouldn't think it's we're hybrid. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's it, up to the actor, the individual actor, I guess, to, to, to take what style, what, what works for them. Well, absolutely right, and I suppose what we tried to do... Uh, is best expressed by you know the great uh, movement teacher at NIDA, who was Keith Bain, and he used to say, "Teach the person, not the subject." And he treated everybody as individuals. And one of the great things he used to say to people: "You are important. You are not him or her. You are you." And what you have to do, and what Kevin tried to do was to trust your own feelings, your own emotions, your own life experience and find the technique of drawing on that to inform the, te- the characters you're, you're playing. And I, I don't think there's any imitation of the American method or the English method. I mean, even in dealing with Shakespeare, um, you know, people talk about speaking the lines properly that that certainly never worried me because i i always thought i mean the line is written with a certain rhythm which you've got to accept 
I mean, you can't just pause anywhere because usually the Shakespeare line is written in two sections with a beat in the middle. You know, if music be the food of love, play on. I mean, every line is like that. But what you have to do is to understand what the words mean, why you're using them, and what you're trying to achieve by putting them out to affect somebody else. So you don't think, how beautifully shall I speak this? I mean, the, you, you pick up on odd stuff from uh, books about acting. <laughs> I've got a book up there uh, written by an American chap I'd never heard of called Louis Fantasia, who, wrote, who wrote, writes about acting Shakespeare, uh, about acting in general. And his advice was, uh, act the verbs, uh, get to know the nouns thoroughly, and let the adverbs and adjectives take care of themselves. So if you've got a line, find the verb. That's the action word. If it's about uh, motor cars, then you've got to know exactly what sort of motor car you're dealing with. And if it's a beautiful motor car, uh, just throw that in. So it, it's not, oh, I have a beautiful motor car. I've got a beautiful motor car. <laughs> and it's very sensible advice. And we, at night of some time, taught grammar. Uh, because if you don't know what a subject is, a predicate, if you can't pick the key verb in a sentence, particularly by Shakespeare, you're going to be in trouble. So, and grammar's gone out the window in schools, so we often had to teach a lot of stuff that schools should have taught but didn't. <laughs> well, John, we, we keenly look forward to your the release of your book in 2020, um, <laughs> in which you document your time at NIDA. Yes, yes, it is. It's it's not a history of NIDA. It's, I suppose, it's the story of my time there, and really, it's a tribute to mostly the students and staff who really made NIDA great. I mean, the people who did the work, and uh, I mean, you can't have a good theatre school unless you've got the very best students, and somehow we managed to do that. And you've got to have good teachers, which we did. And above all, I think you've got to have a system where uh, opportunities are given to people to shine and make their own statement as artists. I mean, some students don't respond to teaching. And that was the importance of the play productions that we did. We did more play productions than any other school I know. But the thing that really made the teaching work so well was the way that the teaching program, which happened in the mornings, you know, the classwork, coordinated with the productions that were in rehearsal in the afternoon. So if uh, we're rehearsing Shakespeare's, which we always used to do in second year, not for their own sake, but to teach students to deal with difficult language. Uh, but the morning classes, there'd be workshops on Shakespeare, there'd be workshops on grammar, uh, there'd be voice classes on rhythm and, uh, you know, figures of speech, uh, there'd be history of theatre classes on Shakespeare and Shakespeare contemporaries. So it all worked together. 
And some years ago, 2011, after I'd left NIDA, one of the top acting teachers at UCLA in America came out uh, to work at NIDA and he wrote in a program note uh, that he could not understand why now NIDA had such a terrific reputation in America, which was the home of all the great acting teachers. You know, like Stella Adger and the Actors Studio. Uh, and he said he came out to find what was NIDA's secret formula? What was NIDA's magic if? The secret formula was really talented students, talented staff, the play production program, and the way the play productions were so closely integrated with classes. And that's what made NIDA great for its first 50 years. After the first 50 years, things changed, and I, it's best I don't talk about that. That's some contribution to the arts in Australia and abroad from John. It's an essential story, and I'm thrilled that we could celebrate Mr Clark in this episode of Stages. Next time, my guest is Roland Roccicelli. Born in the goldfields of Western Australia, he has navigated a career as a stage manager, director, playwright, actor and broadcaster, taking him around the world to work with some of the greats of theatre and film. As always, I'm Peter Ayers. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.